Open your Bibles up to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Last week what we shared with you was that we were looking at the prophecies of Isaiah, some of them. And in particular, he stresses one thing that is throughout the, the book, and that is in regard to the servant. Actually, I think it's the next slide that is up here where you can see there are many, many different scriptures that talk about someone called the servant of the Lord. And combining that with other prophets, I believe that when he talks about the servant of the Lord there, he's referring to the Messiah. So he raised a question about the Messiah. The word Messiah is the word Mashiach in the Hebrew, and it's translated as the anointed one most of the time in the Bible. There are a few places where the word actually is translated Messiah, like in the book of Daniel and also in the book of John. Of course, that would be the Greek rather than the Hebrew. The word anointed one was used for the priests, and it was also used for the kings occasionally. So it's used throughout the Bible in different places. But when you get into the prophets, it goes beyond just a mere high priest or goes beyond just a mere king and it begins to start speaking about someone that is very unique and very different. For example, just to mention without looking up these scriptures, Isaiah 7, for example, and Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 55. You can see these on the board if we were to take the time to look at them. They speak of a, of a servant. They speak of someone that will be born of a virgin, that will be called the mighty God, and that will usher in an age of deliverance and restoration upon the earth. And of course, this individual is referred to as the servant. This is the one that is referred to um, as the Messiah. We're told specifically in Micah 5, 2, that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we're told in Zechariah 9 and verse 9 that this Messiah will bring about salvation. And if we were to run these scriptures through the New Testament... Like, look at Zechariah 9.9 real quick. I don't think we read this one. But if you look at Zechariah, if we were to run these through the New Testament, you would see where Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. He, did, he never denied that he was the Christ. One time in, in John 4, when he was speaking to the woman at the well, she said to him, the Samaritan woman, she said to him, you say that there is uh, coming a Messiah. And she comes right out and asks him, are you he? And he says, yes, I am, basically. Now I'm paraphrasing. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, for example, you read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt and the fowl of an ass. And of course, Jesus did that on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That 
They began to throw down the palm, tr- palm branches and clothing. They threw their coats over the colt and he rode in. So there are many, many ways, many places that we could confirm all these different prophecies about the coming Messiah. Well, the Jews, knowing all these scriptures, and there are many of them, they were looking for a Messiah. After Christ did come and they rejected him, they've changed their position somewhat because they want to be different from Christianity. But they were looking for a Messiah, but what they didn't see was that this Messiah would be a man, but the Messiah would also be God. Because obviously Isaiah spoke about him being born of a virgin. And yet Isaiah 9 also refers to him as the mighty God, the everlasting Father. So I don't know that they could reconcile that. I don't know that that, that's easy for us to even reconcile and understand. Jesus is, is God. The Bible, when it speaks about how that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father... It's not speaking there about how that the father had a son and somehow there was a mother involved and he had a son like I have sons. It isn't speaking of two individuals. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. God is one. But he is eternally manifested as like three personalities, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And that's not the easiest thing to understand. It's something that you have to pretty much take by faith. John 1, 1, though, when it's talking about Jesus before he became a man. Now, Jesus was full God. He never lost his deity. And yet at the same time, he was a full man like you and I. He had to eat to live. When he came out of Mary's womb, he had to be nursed. He had to have his diaper changed. He had to be fed later on with the food other than what came uh, from what God gave Mary. He had to be taught different languages. He had to learn um, different things. He had to learn the scriptures. He was a carpenter's son. No doubt he had the trade of a carpenter. So he had to learn how to cut wood. And he had to learn how to shape it and work with it. He had to learn all the different things that you and I had to learn. He was a man. He sweat like a man. And his hair had to be cut like a man. He was full, total, complete man. And yet he was also full God. The Bible says he laid aside the divine attributes of being omniscient and all-knowing and all-powerful. He was not all-powerful as a man in that he could, he could use his power to, to do a miracle. Some of the false books and stories about him speak about how that he would just be outside as a little boy playing in the yard, pick up a rock and throw it up in the air and it turned into a bird. Those are false stories. They're nothing more than uh, things that people have made up in their minds. He didn't have that kind of uh, power. He didn't use, as God spirit, he could have done all that, but he didn't do that. What he did was he took on humanity for a variety of reasons some will mention, but he was full God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, speaking about the Lagos, speaking about Jesus 
in, in his manifested spirit. The word was with God and the word was God and the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14 says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus was the begotten of the Father. Begotten is a word that means unique. He had two natures. He had a full divine nature and a full human nature. One time in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, he prayed to the Father. See, he was not the Father, but at this, and, he, and he would pray to the Father, but at the same time, he was God. But he prayed to the Father, and he made this statement. He said, uh, John chapter 17 and verse 5, he says, verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He existed before the world was. He didn't come into being in Bethlehem. That's when God took upon himself humanity. Now, if you look real closely at First Timothy chapter 3, that's obviously very difficult to understand. I've had people through the years that have asked me to explain the Trinity. And you can explain it to a certain degree, but what it really comes down to is that it's something that you have to take by faith. It's a mystery. People will try to say, well, three and one, that's like an egg. You have the yolk, the white, and the shell. But God's not an egg. Or people will say, well, you have H2O, you have water. So you have a liquid, and if you boil the liquid, it turns into a gas. And if you freeze the liquid, it becomes ice. So you have gas, water, and ice in one. But again, God's not water. You can't do that. Those are all analogies that people have felt like they had to come up with some way to prove that Jesus was God. You don't have to prove anything. John 10, he said, I and my Father are one. And the religious leaders that didn't understand it and believe it, it says they picked up stones to stone him. You don't have to explain it. It's a mystery. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says... Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. There are many things that are just plain mysteries, and that's what faith is all about. When we can't prove something or we can't explain something, but we are told that this is the way that it is, Faith takes God, it takes the scriptures at, it were, at its word, and it believes it. And there are just some things that we won't understand until we get over onto the other side, because there are mysteries that are involved. Some people like to, like to try to make those into contradictions, and the Bible says that you don't try to argue with people about it. My wife and I one time were on vacation here a few weeks, a few months ago, Pennsylvania, and a couple men that were educators from New England, when they found out I was a pastor, they started throwing questions at me. And 
the comment was made by one of them that, well, I read the Bible through a couple times and saw the contradictions. And I remember saying, well, what contradictions are you talking about? Because <laughs> I, I told him that I believed the Bible from cover to cover, took it literally. And anyways, he threw out some that I think I've talked about before that were supposed to be apparent contradictions, and they weren't contradictions. He just, did, he just read the Bible. He didn't study it. You have to study it to understand it. But that's the attitude of a lot of people. They're going by hearsay, or maybe they read something and they didn't bother to really dig it out. But even theologians that have really sought to dig out the truth from the Bible have still come into some situations whereby they can't explain something. But So you take it by faith. It's a mystery. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul, he describes a little bit of this mystery where he talks about how that God took upon himself humanity. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, verse 5, who being in the form of God, or being God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was God. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And this servant is mentioned in Isaiah over and over and over again. We didn't bother to look at, these, at those scriptures, but, well, you can see them on the board up at the top. There are many of them. talks about the divine servant. Being found in fashion as a man then, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He laid down his life. He, no one, they, they may have killed him, but he had... He could have cried out to the Father um, hypothetically and had legions of angels deliver him. He said that. But he chose not to do that for a very good reason. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death, unto death, the death of the cross, so that he might bring about redemption for us, so that he might reconcile us to God. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. All will worship him, all will honor him, all will know that he is God. Every, and then they will confess that, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we said the word Christ means Messiah. So one day, all men are going to recognize that he is the Messiah. The Messiah that was sent to bring about forgiveness, to bring about reconciliation, to bring about restoration into a new age, to bring about deliverance from the powers of darkness and the curse, and everything else that is mentioned about the Christ. All are going to recognize that and acknowledge it. One more scripture before I get into the heart of my message today. If you look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, this really kind of moves us then in the direction of what I, taught, what I would like to really emphasize today. And that is that the Messiah came for a number of different reasons. He came to straighten out the religious mess that the religious leaders had created by twisting and distorting the word and, and infiltrating it with a lot of false religious pagan ideas. He came to give us the true revelation of truth. 
He gave, came to give us an example as a, a man of how that we were to live as his disciples upon the earth. He said in 1 Peter that we were to follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2. He gave us uh, many, many truths. But we're told here in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 that, men, that one, the main purpose of why he came was to provide redemption for us. God as spirit cannot bleed because the spirit doesn't have blood. The blood of an animal doesn't wash away the sins of a man because the sins of a man are committed as an act of the heart. And the Bible says that all men are guilty, all men are sinful, there's none righteous, no, not one. So you can't have one man die for another man to reconcile us to God. We were all in need to be reconciled to God. God reconciled Adam and Eve to him through the means of an animal and instituted an animal sacrifice. But that blood that was being used to reconcile us to God was pointing to a lamb that was a man. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, what? The Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. But here's one verse that gives you something to think about. He says in Acts 20, 21, Take heed therefore, well I should back up a little bit because Paul's speaking here, he knows he's going to be uh, martyred. He knows he's going to be put to death. And his friends and fellow leaders are, are trying to say to him, you don't want to go to Rome because you're going to be put to death. And he said, I know that, but I know God wants me to go. And then he exhorts them to be responsible in regard to their ministry. And he says, verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the leaders of the church. He'd be like talking to me. He says, take heed to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to feed the church of God. Then listen to this last phrase, which he has purchased with his own blood. God as spirit couldn't bleed. So God took upon humanity so that his blood could be shed. He's the only man that never sinned. And so his, the man, a man's blood was, became a substitute for our, he paid our, for our penalties, what he did. He died for us. But it's referred to here as God's blood. This Messiah was promised for hundreds of years 700 years, actually more than that, if you go back to even the book of Genesis, and we could talk about Balaam and some others, but he was promised for literally hundreds of years before he came. So why then, if you turn over to Isaiah 53, knowing that you have all different kinds of scriptures and all different kinds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, and the Jewish theologians, the Jewish scholars, they intensely studied those scriptures. They had a responsibility to present them to their flock. They studied intently. They knew these things. They inquired into them. So why then, if you look at Isaiah 53 now, 
To so why then was he despised and rejected? Isaiah 53, verse 1 says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And we talked about that last week. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, that there is no beauty that we should discern. He was a common, ordinary man. He didn't come riding around in a royal, uh, in a royal wagon with royal flowing robes and some kind of a royal devised crown or hat upon his head. He didn't come like the Pope, for example, recently, or some other religious leader. He didn't come that way. He came as a carpenter, carpenter's son, blue collar. So, but still, when he came, he came and he taught the people the word of God. He came and multitudes of people were healed. He raised people from the dead. He opened up the eyes of the blind. People that were deaf, he touched their ears and they could hear. He touched people that were under the control of demoniacs, demons, like this man that recently went to Oregon and walked into a school and asked those Christians to stand up and then he brutally killed them. Well, when you go out on his social page, he talked about how that he was a, a follower of magic and that he was a follower of Wicca. He was into the occult. And as being into the occult, the Bible speaks about how that, that is an abomination to God. It opens up a door to demonic oppression. And so no doubt he was under the influence of Satan in doing what he did. Jesus set those kind of people free to whereby they didn't hate the Christian of that day, or we should say maybe the, hate the Jew of that day, but they, they loved him. He turned enemies into close friends. I mean, just one example. When the Bible talks about the apostle Paul, <laughs> rather rude, Dolan, when Bible talks about the Apostle Paul, it was. He's just trying to throw me off. I know right where I'm at. Saul, listen, listen to me. Saul <laughs> was going about persecuting and authorizing people like us, Christians, to be stoned and killed. He thought he was doing God's service and doing that. And Jesus appeared unto him and stopped him on the road to Damascus and audibly spoke to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he fell down on his face. And after he became a Christian and the Holy Spirit entered his heart, he went out and he began to start preaching love and forgiveness and the gospel to those that he was killing before. That's the power of our God. Anyways, with Isaiah 53, we are told he's despised and rejected of men. Now, with all those prophecies and all those good things that Jesus was doing, why was he despised? Why was he rejected? What did he do wrong? Think about it. You're, you are a nation of people that has been under foreign captivity for several hundred years. 
It would be like us, for example, in this country, being overcome by the Russians or Chinese. And they come into our country and they take our homes, they take our property, and they bring all of their people into this country to, to enjoy all of the prosperity and the benefits that we've worked hard to accomplish. And they take all the Americans out and they put them in Russia, put them out in Siberia. They take the Americans out and they put them out in China, put them out in the rice fields in areas of poverty. They didn't give them places like Hong Kong. They didn't give them places like Moscow. They gave them the poor areas of the land. And those people had a promise that one day they were going to be delivered out of that and they would be given back the, the promised blessed land that was given to their forefathers, Abraham. Have you ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? I mean, to Paul in the, in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, the fiddler, or he wasn't the fiddler, he was the father. They were dirt poor. I mean, it's one of the songs he sang. If I were a rich man. His cow died, so he had to push his own milk cart because he didn't have a, uh, any animal to pull it with. He was dirt poor. He had nothing. And yet these are the ones that are, that are the, the promised people. So they've got these promises, and Jesus comes along. He, he starts presenting unto them the word of God. He offers unto them a way out of that life. He, he conf, his word is confirmed over and over again by supernatural miracles that occur. And yet, they put him on a cross. They despised what he did. They rejected what he did. And they put him on a cross. And Isaiah, 700 years before, said this was going to occur. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. They wanted nothing to do with him. It wasn't like recently where we've had the Pope come in. And I'm only trying to make a point. He was a religious leader, leader of the Roman Catholic Church. He comes into this country and people are just standing in the line, in line waiting for him. Now, to be sure, the common people, they wanted to be touched. They wanted to be prayed for. But we had politicians standing in line. We had religious leaders standing in line. They thought it was a great honor to be somehow recognized and associated with the Pope. They didn't do that in Jesus' day. The religious leaders and the politicians put him on a cross. Just the opposite of what was going on today. He was hated by people. And he told us in John chapter 15, if he was hated, you should expect to be hated as well, un unless you're so worldly and you're so much like the world that they don't see any different, then you won't experience hatred. There are a lot of professing Christians today, they don't like to be hated. So they're just going to swallow up and accept anything that the world comes along with. More and more what's being brought forth is that we should accept homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle and that we should accept homosexual marriage as an alternative form of marriage. We should accept things like abortion. Recently, videos came out to indicate and show that 
Babies were being cut up and their body parts were being sold under the name of science. When Hitler did that, we were appalled. Amen. And that hasn't been but maybe 50, 60 years ago. And yet you're going to find where more and more Christians are going to, because they don't want to be hated, they want to be liked, they want to be loved. I mean, you can't win anybody if you're hated, remember? They're going to want to blend in with the rest of the world and ignore what Jesus said. They're not going to really ignore what Jesus said. They just don't bother to read what he said. They just don't, they're just in ignorance to it. In John 18, or John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, then know that it hated me before it hated you. They didn't hate the Pope. They didn't hate him. They didn't despise him. They didn't reject him. They felt honored. I mean, the, the politicians felt honored that he would come in to the Capitol at Washington. They spent millions of dollars to protect him. What they spend on Jesus to protect him? Not a single shilling. No. Jesus went on to say, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. Maybe that's why the Pope is so loved. I mean, what he brought forth instead of a message of repentance and a message of holiness, he was talking about climate change. It's, that's sad. It's funny, but sad. You know what I mean? I mean, those could have been really good opportunities to come out against homosexuality. They would have been really good opportunities to come out against a lot of the, uh, a lot of the sins that America has turned to in recent years. He could have boldly taken a strong stand against things like Planned Parenthood and homosexual marriage, but no, he soft-pedaled it. I mean, depending upon the crowd that he was with, he might have mentioned some of those things, but he didn't bring them out in real opposition to stir up hatred toward him or the Catholic Church. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they've kept my sayings, they'll keep yours also. What does that mean? You know how the news media will take and listen to a politician, and when they say something that's just a little bit unpopular, they, they just keep it up and keep it up and keep it up and keep it up to try to dare, tear down the um, credibility of that individual. Even, and they oftentimes distort it. So what did Jesus do to be despised? What, what happened there? Why wasn't he received like the Pope? Why didn't the Roman rulers recognize and, and, and honor him as the Jews' king? Why didn't the Jewish leaders rejoice and rise up and say, our Messiah is here, the Christ is come? Why didn't they? 700 years before, Isaiah said he was despised and rejected of men. They didn't understand his deity and they didn't understand his advent and all the first and second advent of what he was going to do. So I thought about this and I wrote down some things. I probably won't have time to minister them all, but we'll see if we can get through them at least kind of quickly. They're not too bad. Um, let, me, let me talk about some things that he that he did that caused him to be despised. Well, one, 
If you look over at Luke 4.13, one was he spoke about the sovereignty of God. Look at Luke 4 and verse 13. Now, what, what exactly what do I mean by this? Well, let me try to explain it. This is after he has been tempted of the devil 40 days in the wilderness. And after his time of temptation, he's about ready to go and, and uh, move into his ministry. It says, when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there he went out, there went out fame of him round about all the region round about him. Now that fame was because he was healing the sick and cleansing the lepers. And he was presenting a, a message that uh, they'd never heard before. And so there were a lot of positive things going on. And people are just excited that maybe the Messiah has come. And then we're told here in verse 15, he taught in the synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth. That was his hometown. Where he had been brought up. And as the custom was, he went into the synagogue on a Sabbath day and he stood up to read. They laid the scroll out. He's in his hometown synagogue and he's going to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. So he's into these scriptures that we're talking about. When he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, which is over in Isaiah 61. And he, re and he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book or the scroll, gave it again unto the minister or the, the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. All those people that he... When he was growing up as a child, he sat out there and listened to the leaders of the synagogue minister the word of God. He grew up in that building, in that synagogue. Now he's at the pulpit. And he reads the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, and everybody's looking at him. And he says, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear witness and wondered at the precious words which proceeded out of his mouth and said, this is Joseph's kid. <laughs> and he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician heal thyself. Whatever we've heard done at Capernaum, well then do it here too. They'd heard of the fame. You know, maybe rumor was going around Nazareth. Hey, did you hear about Joe's boy? He's getting in the ministry. Yeah, and I hear that there's been blind people that eyes were open and deaf people that could hear and lame people are walking. And I hear he's really knowledgeable of the scriptures. So word had gone around, you know, of what was happening in all these other cities, but not Nazareth. And so when he stood up now and he read them from Isaiah 61, a prophecy about the Christ about the anointed one, the Messiah, he said, they're just staring at him and said, this is Joseph's son. And he said, you're probably going to say to me all those things that occurred in other places, why don't you do them here? He said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. They couldn't see him as the Christ. All they could see him was as Joseph's boy. So then he makes this statement. 
I tell you of a truth that many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, when the great famine, there was a great famine in the land. And unto none of them was Elijah sent except to, uh, oh, what was her name? It starts with a Z. Zarepta. It's, it's written here as Sarepta, which would have been as the Septuagint wrote it. A city inside and under a woman that was a widow. It was a, the widow of Zarephath. And many lepers were in Israel in the name of Elijah. Elisha here, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Well, Sidon was a city, Tyre and Sidon. They, that was a heathen town. I mean, it wasn't Jewish. It was heathen. And Syria was, was not Jewish either. It was an enemy of Israel. And yet he speaks about here God's blessing upon a woman that was in Sidon and God's blessing upon a leper that was in Syria. Had nothing to do with the ten tribes of Israel or Judah. Nothing to do with them. This is after the reign of Solomon. And when they heard that, all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were upset. They were mad. They rose up and they took him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill where the city was built so they could cast him down the side of a cliff. Now what did he do? What did he do? Why did they despise him for that? You know why he did? Because he brought out their unbelief. He said other people have been blessed because that widow was willing to trust God. Do you remember the story? He came in and he said, what are you doing, woman? She said, oh, I've got just a little bit of meal and a few things. I'm making a little cake for my son and I, my child and I, and we're going to eat it and die. And he said, you give me that food and the barrel of meal and oil will never cease. Do you remember that? He said, you give me your last meal. And she did. And then you remember Naaman when they told him that it was a man that was anointed of the Lord, a prophet by the name of Elisha, and how that he could take care of the leprosy that Naaman had, even though he's a Syrian. And Naaman went to Elisha, and Elisha said, go jump in the Jordan River. <laughs> and he got mad, kind of, and he said, that isn't right. I'm not, he insulted me. Don't he realize who I am? He was a military leader. And his servant said, what's it going to hurt? Go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He went, he dipped, he got cleansed. In other words, they exercised faith. And what he was doing when he stood in the, in the synagogue of his hometown, what he was saying unto them was, your unbelief has kept you from seeing many of these great things that were spoken of by the Christ that he should come. In fact, in Mark 6, 5, if you just listen, you don't have to turn there. What he said to them was, in Mark 6, 5, he could do, this is Mark's account of it. He said, a prophet's not without honor, except in his own country and among his own kin and his own house. He could do there no mighty work, save he lay hands on a few sick folk, and that's it. He couldn't do anything because of their unbelief. It says he marveled at that. But think about what he said. He said God chose to bless somebody in Syria. God chose to bless somebody in a heathen town in Tyre and Sidon. You know why God could do that? Because God's God. And God is sovereign. And if he wanted to bless them and not bless 
the ones that were of the promise in Israel, he could do that. He's God. People forget today that God is sovereign. You know, here's what, here's what his message would have contained. Listen to me. What we've got today is people are, feel like they have to somehow make the gospel acceptable for people. They're presenting, in many cases, a Jesus that is on bended knee, plaguing, ple pleading with people to accept him. And I'm, I'm going to tell you the way it is. I hope you're listening, because this is the way it is. <coughs> Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross and died for us. And his message has been presented to us. And if you don't like it, if you don't like the message of the crucified life, you don't like the message of discipleship, you don't like the message of how that we're to be yoked together with Christ and learn of his will, if you don't like the idea that church is, is going and have to be taught that you can't um, go and be entertained and have fun, if you don't like surrendering your life to Christ, making him the Lord of your life, I'm sorry, there is no other message. That's the way it is. Jesus is not on bended knee begging with people to accept him. We, are, we were criminals. And we, are, we were not found in a lawyer's office somewhere whereby we had a lawyer that was negotiating with a prosecuting attorney to try to come up with a quote-unquote deal. God is sovereign. You either receive him on his terms or Pardon the way I say it, but I'm serious. If you don't want Jesus on the terms that he laid, Jesus, he didn't, he didn't fool around. He laid it out straight the way that it was. I'm not going to be able to say everything I'd like to say for the time. I can see you're getting a little restless, so I don't want to overdo it. They despised him. Why? Well, they despised him not because he looked funny. They despised him not because he, he didn't speak very well. He had a lisp. They despised him because he came along and he didn't agree with their traditions. He didn't agree with their message. He called them hypocrites. He said, you say you, you, say you believe in God, but at the same time you have a faith that is fiend. It's fake. He was like the prophets of old. His message didn't change. He didn't tickle their ears. He didn't hand them a sugar stick. And the bottom line was, he said unto them, if any man will come after me, he's got to deny himself. He has to, to look at his life. You know, I was asked on the porch here a few months ago why I became a Christian. I told the, the individuals I said, because I came to a place in my life where I knew that I could not manage my life right. It was all messed up. And I threw it all away and made Jesus my Lord. People don't want to hear this, but this is the way it is. To become a Christian means that you're going to, you are going to say to yourself, I am a failure as a parent. And I need Jesus to teach me how to manage my family. I am a failure when it comes to a financial manager. And I need Jesus to teach me how to manage my money. 
I'm a failure as a worker. And I need Jesus to teach me how to have a good work ethic. You have to, you have to acknowledge that you are a failure in all aspects of your life and you're going to take Jesus as the Messiah of your life to come in and show you a new way to live and take control and say, this is how you manage a family. This is how you manage your money. This is how you manage your time. This is how you manage your mind. This is how you manage your attitudes. And if you're not willing to do that, you don't want his yoke. What you want is that Jesus is like the Pope that just recently came in. You want a man that the crowds will, will throng over. You want the one, somebody that the politicians and religious leaders will just desire greatly to have. But you don't want his message. And that's what a lot of ministers are doing is instead of being like Paul and presenting the whole counsel of God, they're watering down the word of God, coming up with all kinds of man-made traditions and ideas that are not in the word of God, substituting the word of God for it so that they can get their membership up.